I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Welcome to worship here at the University Church. I'm so glad that you're here as we continue our series today. So what is the series? What We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but I just want you to know a couple of things. If you're here worshiping live or if you're watching online, a couple of transitional pieces that are going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Next week, next Sabbath at this particular service, uh, we will be celebrating our Latin American club on campus with a guest speaker and students involved from that club. I really hope you'll be here to help us welcome and celebrate as a family together as we worship Uh, next Sabbath. And then the following Sabbath, for those of you especially watching online that may have waited to come back until you knew the 9 o'clock worship service was back indoors. It's been in the park. We'll be again next week. But on the 10th, our 9 o'clock worship service typically, which has been at 1030, sorry for all the confusion, will be back here at 9 o'clock, adoration in the sanctuary. And we'll continue with Connect in the Park. And we'll continue to maintain Two outdoor services, two indoor services. You following all that? Just so you know, 9 o'clock, connect at the Goliath Wall. 9 o'clock, this is starting the 10th, adoration right in here. 11.30 or 11.45, sorry, we have Merge, our gospel worship service, out in the tent that's by Halsey Wellness Center and this service right here. Sorry if that's confusing, but we're making our way. We're making our way just fine. I'm glad you're here, whether online or with us in the room for this Sabbath for our worship as we continue this So What series. If it's new to you, if you haven't been here for our So What series, here's why So What is a part of this. Many that wonder about Christianity might think or suppose it is a hollow shell of an idea made by mankind just to try to help us feel better. It's made up. What does it have to do with life? What does it have to do with living in a real world? How does it help you at all? And so we're answering that so what with big stuff. That in the midst of it, of a so what world that's asking, well, so does does Christianity make any difference in your life? We read from Galatians chapter 5 that in fact, the spirit that Jesus left with us, that comes to us with gifts in our lives, produces fruit in our lives that change everything. And if you are not a Christ follower, you're living in a difficult world today without all you could experience that would help you. And today, we're going to take a look at another piece of the puzzle, kindness, kindness. So I'm going to grab my water over here. But as we talk about kindness, and again, Galatians chapter 5 has the fruit of the Spirit listed in a few verses there. We'll touch bases with them again in a moment. But kindness is one of those uh, that we use the word a lot. But if you try to ask yourself, well, what is kindness? Um, You may use other fruit of the Spirit that are listed here. For instance, kindness is followed up by goodness. So we'll we'll miss a week next week in this series. Uh, But then in two weeks, on the 10th, we'll be talking about goodness. So how is kindness any different than goodness? How is kindness any different than love? You might interest you to know that the, the idea of kindness, God has a lot to say about it. It's, it's strewn across the pages of Scripture, this call to kindness. And it is a rare commodity in the world in which we live. Kindness, especially kindness, as Scripture seems to indicate. We'll take a look starting in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So just first of all, just check in on this calibration here. Kindness, it's easy to be kind to people who are being kind to you. That's just nice, nice, right? But what about that moment where you have a grievance? Something's gone wrong, there is tension, there is accusation, there is a wrong that has been done. That's when this word shows up. Kindness. Countercultural. See, in in the world we live, it's it's tit for tat. If they do this, you do that. It's, It's a response mechanism. We're just 
You earn your place, you're right, you get some kindness from me because you're, you're kind in return. No, no, no. This is a little different than that. Proverbs 3, I'd, I guide you to Proverbs 3 in the third verse where it says in the New American Standard Bible, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Kindness is something you have to put on at the beginning of the day. If you wait, it's like clothing. If you wait till you arrive at work to put your clothing on, chances are you're not going to have that job long. If you wait to dress until you're in traffic, that's problematic. And nobody is going to be soothed by you saying, well, what do you mean? I've got it right here in a, in a bag. I know right where it is. It's, I think I left it in my car. That's problematic. You can't show up at the classroom with the intention to dress in kindness. You have to put it on at the beginning of the day. In fact, wrap it around your neck. Hold it close. Prepare for your day. with Take kindness with you because kindness is going to be needed today. Somebody's going to be intolerant. Somebody's going to be unkind. Somebody's going to be accusatory. Somebody's going to have a problem. By the way, do not let kindness and truth leave you. We are a faith community that treasures truth, are we not? But way too often we have treasured truth as the first thing in this sentence, not the second thing in the sentence. First is listed kindness. It is in the context of kindness that truth begins to matter. Once heard it said, no one's going to care what you know until they know that you care. Philippians 4 says it this way, let everyone see that you are considerate, another word for kind, in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. Therefore, kindness is at the front edge. It's the razor's edge of who we are. We're kind. I wonder if that has always necessarily been our identity. You surely have had the experience. You probably have a family member, a loved one, who tells the story of why they no longer are a part of a faith community. And it goes to some point where there's a lack of kindness so often. Maybe you too have somehow weathered the storm. Maybe you've returned over time, but there was a period where you just could not be apart because of unkindness. Maybe, if we're honest enough, we have thought back to times when we're the ones who have been unkind and have shifted and changed the spiritual story of somebody else. Well, today we dip into this fruit of the Spirit. I just want to pause and pray again over God's guidance and His Word and His Spirit uh, gifting us right now. Lord God, thank you. In the midst of a world that is not so sure there's anything worthwhile in this faith of ours, we, we visit one more word, gift, fruit, that comes with the presence of your Spirit in our lives. And Lord, may this be a promise that lives out among us this week kindness. In Jesus we ask it. Amen. So again, in Galatians chapter 5, we read this list of fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the question is, what exactly is kindness? What is kindness? Well, we can talk about what it is. One of the ways the scriptures help us kind of grapple with what kindness is, is to tell us what it is not. With, with, with regularity in scripture, the writer will say, don't be this, instead be kind. As if to say, this is the 180 degree opposite direction from being kind. So I'd like to take a look at two or three of those, and it helps us kind of lock in on some of the textures of kindness. Again, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. It's that little bridge back and forth between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, but I'd like to do it a little counterintuitively because I say Ephesians chapter 4. I'd actually like to start, though, with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to go backwards. I don't know if that's a safe way to go. Some of us lose our, back, our balance when we go backwards. Here we go. The first and second verses of Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore. See, therefore points backwards. 
We're going to go back there in a second. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So, therefore, because of what we just said, be imitators of God. What did we just say? Here's what we just said. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So, be imitators of Christ because We've been saying, be kind, be compassionate, and forgiving, which, by the way, is a little clue to the subject of kindness. Kindness shows up in the moment someone has wronged you. In the moment there is natural distance. In the moment that it would be easy to explain why I'm not behaving kindly, I'm just responding in kind, but not by being kind. Well, if you back up one more verse, check out the contrast that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of, of malice. Be kind. So what's kind? Kind is the opposite. Kind is the thing that is not bitterness and rage and anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. <clears throat> I, I, just, I just want to just check in with you. Have you noticed there are a few folks today that are bitter? That rage is prevalent in our society? By the way, rage and bitterness happen in the heart. So if you're like me, you've got decent control and filtration on rage. It doesn't mean it's not there, though. Have you found yourself a little bit bitter underneath it all? You're not letting it out, so you're keeping a good lid on it, and everything's just fine. But that is a blockade against kindness, bitterness is. And I will mask my bitterness with busyness. I will mask my bitterness with, and my rage with distance, with time spent away, with unresponsiveness, Kindness is active and proactive in the face of and in the presence of all forms of malice, brawling and slander. <laughs> I don't know, are you a brawler? So I'm not, except, are you, are you with me on this? That you're generally kind, but then there are those specific situations. For me, it's the uh, larger group setting where somebody says something with sarcasm that they mean to get away with taking a shot at you but then being able to claim it's humor. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that sideways attack and then when you push back at all, they go, whoa, hey, don't be so sensitive. <laughs> we, were just, we were just joking. Just joking. Oh, see... I am a thoughtful brawler, though, see, because I see that happen, and I come around, I swing around to the side and take them at their flank, right? It may take me a minute or two, but I don't forget. I'm, I'm a patient brawler. Ah. Kindness is what the Spirit flares up in the moment that would have been the brawling, that would have been retribution, that would have been some attack in response. I invite you to check out 2 Timothy. In, in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to a young leader and encouraging this young leader. In the second chapter, check, check out this. This also gives us a little framing for the subject of what kindness even is. He says this, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I grew up in a home, anybody else here? I grew up in a home that we were not allowed to use the word stupid. Don't call somebody stupid. Well, this is at least, these are stupid arguments. These aren't people we're calling stupid though it gets really dangerously close. It's the NIV. I'm blaming it on Paul. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Oh, boy. See, I love arguing. If my mother were still alive, she would attest I love arguing, and I can keep a calm voice and argue, but 
<laughs> You're welcome. But quarreling is not kind. Hmm. To give up an argument you could win as an act of kindness. Ah. Oh. By the way, a little time out here. We are <clears throat> increasingly consumed by social media. <laughs> and if there were a passage of scripture that were better written to me, to us, to our environment in the context of social media, just think about it. Don't get caught up in silly, foolish, stupid arguments. They, the, re, your responses create quarreling, and quarreling is the opposite of this fruit of the spirit of kindness. How many of you have posted something on social media only to have a response that now you spend all this time talking about things you weren't talking about in the first place? And you, have you noticed you cannot win? You cannot, there is no victory to be proclaimed. It's just degrees of defeat and quarreling that sap your spirit and make you wonder about humanity at large. Or maybe it's just me. Quarreling. You see, Kindness is not the thing that happens when you've run out of arguments. Kindness is the thing that happens when you decide not to argue when you had the winning argument. Proverbs 11, check it out. This is fascinating. A kind man benefits himself. There is a benefit to this kindness from the inside out, but a cruel man brings trouble on himself you can win in the short run and lose in the long. And isn't it interesting to compare that Jesus might say, you want to know what this kindness is? I'll tell you what kindness is. Kindness is the absence of quarreling when you could quarrel. Kindness is, is forgiving when somebody has malice toward you. Kindness is not being cruel. There is a cruelty in our world that shows up in our grade schools. There's a cruelty that I remember from my teenage years trying to elevate myself with just the right comment of humor only to see the look in the eye of the, the victim of my moment. And yes, I got everybody to laugh but one. But it was cruel. Cruelty. And some part of us says, yeah, but they started it. <laughs> Parents, you've heard this, right? If you've got more than one child. She star he, started, he, they, he started it. And yet, even in our Christian journey, there's a part of us that leans back into this childhood rant. They started it. They did it first. They're the ones who are... And Jesus says, amidst their doing it, kindness walks in. And it's big. Oh, if you want to know if there is any difference that is made from being a Christian, a Christ follower, if people who are under attack and have the armaments to fight back choose not to and instead sacrifice themselves in acts of kindness, this is a proclamation of the Spirit of God. It's a massive difference from the world we're surrounded by. I'd like to visit a story. It's one, I, I, I looked around for other stories and I just kept coming back to this one because you know this story well, but I'd like to just kind of dig around in it on the subject. It won't be terribly surprising. You find it in Luke chapter, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, Jesus has been asked a question and often when he's asked a question by lawyers or priests or others, they're trying to trap him. And with regularity, what Jesus does is asks a question back, and suddenly the, the scenario flips. Which, by the way, I think is a, is a wonderful approach when you feel like you're being attacked and somebody's asking a question, maybe targeted to humiliate you, is to consider asking questions back because it can change the tenor of the conversation rather than throwing out accusations or even responding with kind of declarative statements. So Jesus asks a question in return. And back and forth the answering goes 
it surrounds this notion of who the neighbor is. They see the lawyer starts by asking, who is my neighbor? Who's the person who should be neighborly to me? And Jesus flips it and asks, well, now wait. The real question is, who should you be neighborly to? Let's consider this for a minute and tells the story. You know the story. It starts on this road trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's a winding road. It can be a desertous and, and desolate road in spots. And in fact, it's dangerous. Usually people would not go by themselves on this trek and on this trip. And as the story goes, that you know well, titled The Good Samaritan, as the story goes, there is a Jewish man who is walking alone on this pathway, and he is accosted by robbers who beat him, strip him down, and leave him unconscious as if dead. Three travelers are going to pass him by. You know them. Now, by the way, as Jesus tells this story, the cultural context, the crowd that's gathered there is largely made up of the group of people who are kind of in the middle of the social spectrum. Now, one of the ways to think about the social spectrum, we think about it in terms of wealth often. In Israel, there was a way to think of it that had to do with levels of purity. And there's a 1%. There's always that 1% group, right? The ones who make the most money, the ones who um, were born with the right last name, the ones who have the right roles and heritage in Israel to be a priest or a Levite, some of the Herodians, this very top 1% of the population. They were seen at the top of the pyramid. They were the most pure. Jesus is going to point out a couple of people from that top 1%. And of course, we would think the 1%, those are the lucky ones. Those are the good ones. Those are the great ones. By the way, as Jesus tells this story, the suggestion scholars make is that he is telling a true and real story. He is stripping, pulling something right out of the news of a guy that was traveling down through the roadway. Some of them would already know that this particular person ended up being aided by a Samaritan, which, by the way, is not something that caused them to think highly of the Samaritan. It causes them to think lowly of the Jewish man who was hurt. And in fact, in that time, that biblical context of that generation, the notion was that traveling along a person like this from that otherwise middle-class group that 75% of the population would be in this kind of the heart of the not nearly as pure as the, as, as the priests and Levites and the Pharisees, but more pure than somebody who had uh, certain maladies or sicknesses or other kinds of work, of course, tax collectors and so forth. By the way, on this purity scale, the, the Samaritans aren't even on it. They're not, they don't make it to any level of purity to be talked about. But for a man to be traveling alone, it, it was seen as being a social deviant. So they already are suspicious of this guy, and they come from a culture where when something happens to you, the first question is, what did you do to deserve it? Because that's probably what's going on here. So here you have this social deviant of this Jewish man who uh, doesn't have family, doesn't have friends, and he goes trekking down this trail ill-advisedly, and he's beaten up by robbers, which, by the way, even the robbers there were seen as more highly because they were often peasants who had lost their lands, and so they're kind of Robin Hood-like redistributing the wealth. And So now he's beaten, probably deserved it, and then... A Samaritan comes to his aid. Something about him fits in nicely with the Samaritan. This is just a bad dude. This is, we are not, there's no sympathy. They're not sitting there listening to the story as you and I might be prone to in thinking at least neutrally about this Jewish man. They're, they're thinking he's, he's the problem, partly. And as the scriptures continue and Jesus tells the story, it describes that he is beaten and left half dead and unclothed, really, stripped down. The two real easy ways to tell that this was a Jewish man would be, one, by his accent, but he's unconscious. Number two, by the way he's dressed, but he's stripped. So as the priest walks this road, probably with a retinue of others, as he walks this road, he can see from a distance, here you have an unclad man who's unconscious, and he cannot tell anything about his origins. If he touches this bloodied man, no matter if he's a Jew or not, he's going to be unclean. He's going to have to report then to his place of 
high honor and go through a ritual of being impure. But see, he's in the 1% pure cat. I mean, he's way up there. And so this is deeply risky because this could even be a Samaritan. He can't tell. It's not worth it. So he stays away. He doesn't even get close enough to really try to determine anything, see the man's wounds, this sort of thing. All he knows is there's a man over there and he's just cruising along. Likely, it might be, that some ways behind him is a Levite, as Jesus tells the story, who may indeed actually even watch the priest up ahead veer around so that when the Levite comes, he's got the social peer pressure of the one who's just little tiny notch above him on the purity scale who has demonstrated the pure way to approach what's happening here. Have you noticed we do this? We create our own cultures within cultures of how you should behave when somebody has done this or done that. And the person just up ahead from us, we watch how they treated them and then we kind of go along with it and there comes this kind of peer pressure approach. I'm going to suggest to you that we are going to be in deep, deep trouble as a faith community if we watch one another to gain our ideas of how we treat people. Our demonstration must come from Jesus Christ. And oh, brother or sister, if you're following behind Jesus Christ, you're going to notice he does things differently. He is a risk taker on humanity. You know it. The fact that you are here as a follower of his, you know he's a risk taker on humanity because you know you like we can't. And I know me Like, you have no idea this risky God. Well, this Levite draws close enough to be able to be curious enough to see the wounds and see the problems and see the difficulties. He slows down a little bit to just kind of check it out. He's going to be able to tell a better story later. He's got more of the details. Have you noticed we have a morbid interest in telling the difficult stories? Oh, you'll never guess. Did you hear what happened? To this? Did you hear about their, their son, their daughter? Did you, did you hear what's happening in that marriage? Do you understand what's going on over here in this thing? Oh, I heard such and so was fired. No, did you hear about the pastor of that particular church? <laughs> the Levite draws close enough to get enough details. He'll be able to tell the better story by the time they're done. And then comes along the Samaritan. The Samaritan stops, gets off his donkey. Maybe he's got a donkey filled with goods. There's a likelihood because by the time it's done, the the Samaritan will have cleansed the wounds with the alcohol in his wine. He will have put oil on these wounds to salve it. He will have wrapped bandages around these wounds. He's got money for an inn that he knows where he's planning on staying. This sounds an awful lot, scholars suggest, like a person who is actually a trader, not a traitor, a trader person who trades in goods, which by the way, if he were a Jew, that would put him at the bottom of the purity scale. (laughs) So he's a Samaritan who can't make it on the scale, and he's a trader who goes alone. I don't know if he even has to unpack his donkey so that he can put this man on it and slowly, painstakingly, makes his way through dangerous territory on behalf of of this man whose identity he doesn't know. And by the time he gets to the inn where he planned to stay, does he give up the only room? I don't know. But he pays for his lodging. He pays for his medical care. Leaves extra money for the food. And then he does what scholars suggest is the most dangerous thing in the story so far. He tells the innkeeper, I will be back and I will pay for any other needs that he has. And he leaves his identity with the innkeeper. He puts his name down and says, hey, look, here's my contact information. How many of you have been in a conversation with somebody and you find yourself managing how willing you are for them to have the capacity to reach you on your cell phone? (laughs) 
He gives his identity in connection with helping in the healing of this man. And here's the problem with that. You see, his family, he now knows this is a Jewish man. That Jewish man's family, if that man should die, will come after the Samaritan to seek retribution, and they know he's going to show back up. Even if he is well they will not be happy that a Samaritan assisted him and they may show up to gain retribution over the fact that he has shamed their family member. Oh my goodness, how, how crazy is it that in the moment somebody might even reach out to be kind to us, if they're different enough, if they don't believe the thing I believe, if they... You fill in the blank. We go after one another in ways that are wildly unkind. And amidst all of this, the Samaritan says, it does not matter. See, what kindness does, it steps into the breach. It steps into the battle and changes the dynamic. It doesn't fight back. It instead exercises its energies on behalf of the enemy. Oh, crazy. Four clear points that jump out of this story I'd like to just remind you of and invite you to just kind of grab in your mind, grab on your pen and paper if you like. Firstly, kindness requires drawing near. One of the ways we keep from being kind is staying separate. And, and what I'm saying is when we keep surrounding ourselves with the people who are already kind to us, the people who know us, our own people, our own stuff, that's where we don't really need to exercise kindness. We just are exercising homogeneity and cultural acclamation, right? Kindness is required when there's the person who's different from me, the person who is the other than me. And one of the ways that we can be unkind is to just kind of keep, see, see the priest as he goes along, he doesn't even give himself the chance to be unkind, he thinks, because he hasn't drawn near. No, 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 Jesus would say, you are being unkind by creating separation and space, distance. Second, kindness feels the pain of the person who is different than you. In the course of all that we've gone through this summer, if you haven't noticed, we have plenty of opportunity to feel the heartbeat of somebody different than me, somebody who, who doesn't feel like we should be behaving in certain protocols over COVID, somebody who doesn't have my skin texture or, or color, somebody who doesn't, you know, right? We have the opportunities to draw near and then feel the pain. That comes through a listening heart. And it requires a certain willingness to say, I'm going to put my own story to the side right now. Telling you my thing isn't nearly as important as my finding out yours. Have you noticed it takes an awful lot of maturity to walk into a relationship or a situation in a setting and not be worried about whether they've heard you? No, no. What's really important about our interaction is what I think. And Jesus says, no, you need to draw close, but it's not enough to be like the Levite and get a little closer because of some weird curiosity. You need to be willing to feel the pain. And I promise you, if you are willing to feel the pain of those around you, you will not be disappointed by a lack of opportunity. The third kindness note, kindness stops. And kindness doesn't just stop when it's convenient. Kindness stops in the moment presented. Hey, look, I'd be willing to give an offering when I get back home, O oh, beaten one. Uh, if you're still by the side of the road on my way back home from work, 
then I'll stop to try to tend to your wounds. Kindness throws convenience out the window. Go back and read the New Testament and ask yourself how many miracles of Jesus happened because he was willing to stop. Some of these things I've been sharing, I feel like I can look out at you and say, oh, I sure hope you're hearing this. This is one of them that gets right between the ribs and into the heart. Because one of the ways I believe I can be unkind is by filling up a busy schedule that keeps me from being able to divert any kindness to the moment. Fascinatingly, Proverbs chapter 3, that same chapter, check, check out the 27th and 28th verses. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. When it is in your power to act. Well, but it's not convenient, but it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow. When you have it with you now, and you may or may not have the money that they need. You may or may not have the skill set that they need. But here's what you do have if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You have the requirement, the required level of kindness for this moment. Or else I am not a follower of Jesus. Or else the spirit is not growing up in me. And finally, kindness pays the price. Kindness pays the price. Kindness will pay the price of the finances. Kindness will pay the price of the interrupted schedule and the time it takes. Kindness will pay the price of giving away something that you intended for yourself. Kindness pays the price of reputation. Kindness pays the price of being willing to be misunderstood. Every once in a while, my behavior towards certain people have caused others to ask me, well, wait, I thought you believed this. Kindness is its own theological pillar and is not reserved for those who believe all the other parts of my theology. And in fact, as we read, Jesus would say, Bind up kindness and truth, not just truth, or you're in trouble. This kindness, it's an interesting challenge, because as we've read, as we've looked so far, in many ways, in many examples, it's one thing to just be generally kind. It's one thing when the waitress comes and says, hey, what would you like to order? That You, you ask her, well, what is your name? And then you di dialogue with her and you talk. And you know what it was at odds with each other. Kindness goes way farther than that, as is shown in Scripture. Kindness is the opposite of cruelty. Kindness stops the quarrels, is a roadblock to, to those things that involve malice and misunderstanding. Kindness carries with it forgiveness and the salve of the Spirit's presence. Kindness is a whole other, deeper layer of thing, and maybe it's just what we need in a day like today. I'd like to share with you just uh, as we close. <clears throat> one of my favorite stories, but taken from a little different angle. It's one that I haven't really looked at it before very often. It's in 2 Kings and in the time of Elisha. Elisha is a, I just love the stories of Elisha. And in this particular moment, in this particular story, around the eighth verse of 2 Kings 6, what you're going to find is the king of, of Aramea, he has been sending little groups of soldiers to terrorize the outskirts of Israel. They would steal children from the towns that border on Aram. They would burn down crops. They would maim horses. They would just, just, I mean, just inflecting fear and terror and problem. And I don't know whether your life has anybody like that in the neighborhood who seems to like to come and dart in and create chaos and problems in your life. Feels like there's a bit of that going on these days. 
In the midst of it, something changes, though, because their little forays into Israel, they keep being ambushed. And so finally, the king draws everyone together, his, his, uh, his group of advisors, and he says, look, here's the problem. Somebody here is, is disloyal. Somebody here is a traitor. Somebody is telling the Israelites what we're about to do. It cannot happen this consistently. It's way too often. And somebody, how much courage would this take? Somebody goes, um, <clears throat> king, so... Here's the thing. There's a prophet in Israel. This sounds like the kind of story you make up when you were the one who was the traitor. <laughs> so there's a prophet in Israel uh, who has such a relationship with God, God tells him what you're thinking, what we are discussing in meetings like this right now. He's telling him what it is that's going on when you are in your bedchamber whispering. He, God, he, this, this guy, this prophet, well, who is it? He's Elisha. He lives in a little town in Israel called Dothan. And the king says, all right, we're going to put together a group and we are going to go take out this prophet. At which point, if I'm the guy who made this kind of commentary, I would probably get, wait, did you not, probably couldn't, maybe you didn't, didn't hear that he is telling him everything we're saying right now. Anyway. A morning comes. Sometime later, in Dothan, the prophet's house, there is a son of the prophets. There would be young men that would be trained and would be household uh, servants and so on and he is the first one up maybe that particular day and maybe he's going out to the well to get some water for the morning to cook with or whatever it is he's doing he comes to the front door and he stretches and he rubs the sleepy dust out of the eyes and he looks out and panics because there they are the the forces from Aram and they are surrounding in this valley there is no way out it is encircled by mountainsides and he rushes back to tell the story to Elisha. Elisha, we're in trouble. We're in deep, deep trouble. There are enemy soldiers that are out there and calmly, slowly. Have you noticed people who are deeply kind are often calmer than the rest of us? Calmly, slowly, Elisha comes out and he begins to put a hand on his shoulder and he looks out. I don't know if in that moment Elisha can actually see what this young son of the prophet cannot see or if he's just had so many moments already with God that he knows he can rely on the fact that God has sent his warriors. But he prays, open his eyes that he can see and in that moment the young servant looks out and he sees gleaming in the hillside surrounding it is a mighty host of angels. And these aren't the harp playing variety. These are the sword wielding ones. And I wonder if they got a little twinkle in their eye. This last week was my wife's birthday. One of the things we like to do on birthdays is to celebrate by having family members take turns sharing things we love about that other person. And this particular time we were telling stories that stand up that are really mom, really Carolyn, right? And so our middle daughter, Alyssa, shared a story of being on a mission trip in, uh, I believe it's the Galapagos Islands, <clears throat> is either that or somewhere else in Ecuador. And uh, as we had this larger group, we have adults and students as a youth trip, and uh, she's in grade school at the time, and, but this kind of looks like she could be in high school. And somewhere along the way, one of the attendants there working for the airlines pulls her out of line. She needs to account for they're going to go through. She is selected for a screening. They're going to be going through her luggage, and she's pulled away. This, this child who's a minor, who's, our, I mean, just pulled away and is being guided around some buildings and through a scenario where she's just away from everybody else and courageously she's going along, but in the meantime, somebody alerts her mother. And this last week, Carolyn shared from her perspective that she went past many people in the next couple of moments that she knows it was their job to stop her. But they did not because of the look in her eye. This is a moment, you will not stop me. The question is, what is your life going to end up like? And I wonder as he looks out into the hillside, can he catch the glint in the eye of warriors of heaven who will not let you down? 
who share with the God of the universe this sentiment as told in Zechariah, when they touch you, they touch the apple of my eye. I've always thought of that story as this incredible demonstration of the protective power of God and that if our eyes could be open, we would see God has our back. And I love that element of this story, but I've recently noticed a different element. And it's something you'll be familiar with. It's what happens next in the story. Because next in the story, prayer is offered and the Arameans are stricken blind. Oh, that we had that kind of power, huh? That your enemy, that the person who is after you, that a little prayer and some version of blindness strikes them. They can't know how to get at you anymore. They don't realize how to push your buttons anymore. And they're blind. And so now Elisha comes out and the son of the prophet comes out and these two basically give organizing instructions to the Arameans. I probably let's go two by two, so grab a hand. <laughs> grab a hand and then we will uh, lead you to where you want to go. We can guide you. And there they are fumbling along these blind soldiers as out of Dothan they are led and into Samaria where the king's palace is. And on the walls of the palace they can see the dust beginning to billow from a ways off. They prepare because who knows in this day and age Aramean soldiers are known to raid. And then they see them. Those are Arameans but they are moving weirdly. And who is that in the front? But by now they have, is it, do you call it knock? Knocking a, an arrow in a bow? Anybody a aficionado? Anyway, they have their, their arrows strung in the bow. They have spears. They have swords. They are ready. And here he comes. Elisha brings all of the Aramean soldiers and right on into the gates of Samaria, into the palace courtyard of the king. And the king asks Elisha this question, should we kill them? Should we kill them, my father? He asked it twice, which by the way, in Scripture often when the same question is asked twice by the same person, it's meant to not be a question but a suggestion. We should kill them, right? Kill them, yeah? Let's kill them. I'm ready to kill them. Let's do that. Uh, we're all ready. Yeah? And in the moment, with the attackers all there, with the upper hand, Elisha says, no, 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 no. We're going to feed them and send them home. And in my last reading of 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23, I begin to wonder if maybe Elisha is praying that his servant sees even more than just the angels on the hillside, but sees the power of kindness. For this story in that 23rd verse will end with these words. If I can find them. So, the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. The power of kindness to affect even the enemy. Do you question it? If you do, remember this. You were God's enemy. I was God's enemy. And the Bible says that that which claimed our hearts for God was his kindness. Read about it in Romans chapter 2. It starts with this inner dialogue about judging other people and the battling back and forth. And then he goes on, Paul does, to write, Do you show contempt for the riches of his, Jesus' kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? It is kindness that brings on repentance. Could it possibly be that not only does kindness change the world of the one who is kind, because the one who is kind gains good things. The one who is cruel, their world is destroyed. But could it also be that kindness is God's plan to evangelize and claim lost souls? So what? 
this Christianity. It's kind of a nifty little game you're playing, coming up with something to help you kind of get through the day. Ah, no, 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 no. This is world-rocking stuff. Life-changing stuff. This kindness for which we pray. Bow with me. Father, could it really be that as we invite your spirit into us, you have so much change that you introduce. Little by little by little, growth begins to happen and fruit is deployed in our lives. Could it be that with your spirit's presence and the character of Jesus Christ, that you can change everything in our spirit and bring kindness into our community? So Lord, Help us put it on, tie it on, wrap ourselves up in it so that it's not just something we know that there's a verse about it that if we could locate our phone or like clothes in a gym bag as we wander around spiritually naked, but that we have been clothed in your kindness so that as I say hello to somebody a little later and bump elbows in some weird greeting, the jacket of kindness is the first thing that touches someone else. Lord God, bless us in this way. We want to be more and more like you. Thank you. We are stricken with the realization. Thank you for your kindness that has led us to repentance and a saving relationship with you in Jesus' name. Amen.